Hey everyone, producer Dave here. Uh, check out our other podcasts. We have The Plex, our flagship show, which is a weekly news roundup. We have Local Love, which is interviews with local Bay Area bands. Uh, speaking of local, we also have Down Ballot, which is our Bay Area local news podcast. And we have How the Tech Are You, which is obviously a tech podcast. Enjoy the show. I don't know, I don't know what they're smoking over there at Princeton. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. I've got a pile of broken mirrors and I'm walking under ladders and I'm spilling tons of salt. But to me that doesn't matter because my skin and my gender and my orientation are the best things to have if you live in this nation. I recommend it highly. On the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. Shit's gonna work out for me. Cause I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. Hey everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do the show on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pacific right here on Twitch. Twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media, simulcasting to a couple other places, but fucking don't worry about those other places. Uh, Twitch is the right place to uh, watch this show. Looks like uh, my co-host tonight is my favorite co-host, myself. Um, HK is out on adventures. Maybe he'll join us during red light. Who fucking knows? But yesterday, I don't know if anybody was aware, yesterday there was an emergency, everybody. There was a fucking emergency. There was an emergency debate about whether or not universities are doomed with Peter Bogosian, Kathleen Stock, and uh, whoever the fuck James Orr is. So it's an emergency. This is on the Unheard podcast. That's spelled Unheard, like H-E-R-D, so that it's you know a double. They're, they're clever over there. You can figure out what the clever thing they're doing is. Obviously, they're just so clever. So fucking clever. So without any further ado, let's see what the emergency is. Flo, how's the evening gonna take place? Hi everybody, welcome back to the Unheard Club, or welcome if it's your first... Can we get her uh, my microphone? Um, I commend you for battling Storm Jocelyn to reach us here on Old Queen Street. And as you can see, we are a very full house tonight, extremely full in fact. Um, this event sold out perhaps quicker than any event we've ever had before. 
So thank you for all getting here. And do make space for the person next to you if they're looking a little squashed. Um, just some housekeeping before we begin. Um, before Freddie introduce our esteemed guests, I just wanted to say that the bar will be open in the interval of this show, which will last about 15 minutes for you to go and get a drink after about 45 minutes of chat between all of us here. And then the restaurant downstairs is open after if you want some delicious food. It is available there until late. So do come and join us. Fire the sound guy afterwards. or gal. Um, Fire the sound person. The voiceless tonight and be keeping a close eye on the words of our subscribers. Fire whoever's playing with their microphone. Uh, they will have their own questions and comments, which hopefully I'll be able to chip in with, and we can keep the ball rolling with both you lovely people in person and also the thousands of people joining across the World Wide Web. It's subscriber only for people asking questions, and so even more reason to become a member of the Unheard family. If you haven't already subscribed... Don't give Unheard your money, give me your money. Um, and with that, I will leave you in the capable hands of Freddie Sayers. Thank you, and welcome once again, everyone. This is our first emergency debate. Uh, what like, why is this an emergency? <laughs> I just don't know. Why is, what is the emergency? See, you might ask. We've known that there are issues to do with the universities for some time. It felt to us like the departure of Claudine Gay and Liz McGill, the presidents of two of the top Ivy League colleges in the US was somehow a significant moment because it meant that rather than there being kind of grumbles from groups about the issues in university campuses, whether they are free speech, whether they are strange ideologies stalking the campuses, uh, whether it's DEI, whether it's a mob culture, whatever, you, whatever your particular issue of concern, suddenly, literally the presidents of two of the top universities in the world had to resign. So we, we had to ask the question, how bad has it got? Our well, there were two uh, women of color, by the way. crucible of our culture, taking forward the best, have they somehow been lost? Have they been captured? And what can we do about it? We have gathered at this short notice three uh, people who have very close experience of exactly these issues. They are all philosophers, as it happens, uh, which we'll probably talk about. Uh, all academic renegades of some kind. Uh, yeah, uh, this is uh, uh, Peter Bogosian, who quit his job of his own accord at, um, I believe it was the University of Oregon, uh, claimed to have been canceled. And then after he quit his job, everybody was like, that guy wasn't very nice. Like, <laughs> like other staff, like not like faculty either. They're just like fucking support staff. When it came out, we're like, that guy was kind of an asshole. Um, it's Kathleen Stock in the middle who nobody knew her name until she like had to dig her heels in on some transphobic shit. And um, she could have just been like, oh, okay, that's fine. But no, she had to go get canceled because that's uh, lucrative. And then I don't know who the who the the guy over here, the third guy, guys, uh, just to the right of the center is. I have no idea who he is, but I loved his uh, soap opera. Peter Bogosian uh, was the assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University until he was forced out by campus politics. He's fam uh, he quit. Famous, most famous, I should say for a series of hoax academic papers that he put together with some colleagues, which he submitted to highly prestigious academic peer-reviewed journals. And uh, on the one that I covered, uh, that, that peer-reviewed journal rejected the paper, and so they put it in a pay-to-play journal and then didn't pay the fee. And many of them got published. Uh, titles included Rape Culture and Queer Performativity at the Dog Park, um, the conceptual penis as a social construct. That's the one that I wrote the article on that they did not get published in, uh, in a regular journal. They got published in a pay-to-play journal and then didn't pay the fee. 
assholes. And an ethnography of restaurant masculinity. Um, these all got the thumbs up from the Academy, so he can tell No, they didn't. Uh, welcome, Pete. Kathleen Stock is a former professor of philosophy at the University of Sussex, author of the bestseller Material Girls, and most importantly for us, star columnist here at Unheard. She also was pushed out of her position at Sussex in 2020. She was mean. Because of her writing. How mean to people. And gender. And James Orr um, was, uh, sorry, is. And this is crucial. <laughs> He's still got it. Fired uh, me already. Assistant Professor of Philosophy of Religion at the University of Cambridge. And that is actually crucial because he is our insider tonight. Uh, he, is, he is going to report from inside the Citadel as to whether the situation can... So is, where's the debate? Rescued. Wait a minute. Is, this, is the guy that's sitting to the right of the center, is he going to take the position that things are not as bad as they seem and that these people are... They're screaming that the sky is falling. Um, so really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. James, I thought the simplest place to start, the rough format, um, as Flo mentioned, is we'll talk for the first 45 minutes or so. There'll be a short break, and then all of your questions, we will get involved after that. Let's start in our bit by identifying the problem, and then we can see if we think it's solvable or not. Pete, that extraordinary uh, experience you had Put getting all of those, what frankly sound like crazy papers published. Yeah. What did you learn from it and how bad is the situation? He learned, he learned that you don't have to actually pay the fee at a pay-to-play journal. Well, the situation is that the peer-reviewed academic literature is corrupt. There's a wide-scale institutional and organizational... The other question is, something, that, getting, okay, something got published, but how, what was the peer review like on the things that were published in the non-pay-to-play journals? Like they, didn't, they never bring this up. What if the peer review was scathing? The source of that corruption are there, there are activist disciplines that are not interested in truth. They're not putting forth ideas that are falsifiable, capable, capable of being shown false, but they want to push a narrative. They want to push ideas about race, gender, sexual orientation, trans status, etc. So tonight we're going to primarily talk about plagiarism. And yes, plagiarism is a, is a kind of fraud and it's extraordinarily important to talk about. And I predict over the next few Months. In fact, I don't. I know for a fact over the next few months, you're going to see hundreds, if not thousands, eventually of dissertations that will be proven to be plagiarized. One of the things that we should also talk about is the source of institutions. Oh, I'd like to go back and look through his academic work. See if maybe, maybe that was plagiarized. They're attempting to take off people's names from the diversity, equity, inclusion, so you can't find those dissertations. So that's one problem. So you have the problem of plagiarism, the problem of university administrators knowing that their faculty have plagiarized. So instead of saying, okay, let's hold people accountable, they're hiding the dissertations and they're making it almost impossible to get those. And then so the if we don't is, find the amount of plagiarism that we said that we're going to find in the, in the academy, it's because of the, because of the conspiracy. He's already fucking, he's already like laying the groundwork for the conspiracy theory that he's gonna posit if they don't find the uh, rampant plagiarism that he says that they're going to find. I really don't want to be lost in this conversation tonight is that there are disciplines that are not rigorous, they're not sound, they're putting forth ideological conclusions and then those conclusions are going on to inform public policy. And so in the conversation tonight, I don't want that to get lost because plagiarism is just one part of the whole scale corruption. What kind of disciplines are you talking about? 
Is a general rule anything that ends in the word studies? <laughs> Black studies, gay studies, women's studies, Chicano studies, Latin. Ooh, yikes. Well, thanks, dude. Well, we know what's up here. So he's a philosopher. And I guess they didn't call it philosophical studies. Studies, indigenous studies, these are fat studies. These are activist disciplines that promote certain views of reality and then go on to inform public policy. Right. On the topic of plagiarism, just before we move down the line, as yeah. it were, you know something about it because th that's one of the ways they sort of convicted you, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I'm, I'm a plagiarist. Oh, wait a minute. Did he plagiarize some shit? <laughs> it's real easy, actually. If you use somebody else's work in your work, you just fucking put it in brackets and cite who the fuck it is. Like, people do it all the time. That's like how it. That's like how the fucking how the sausage gets made, baby. I'm I'm a plagiarist. I have I have plagiarized. Um, I admitted to plagiarize. I plagiarized Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. <laughs> Uh, I you should probably explain the context. Okay. <laughs> uh, so as part of the exposure of, of academic corruption, we submitted, we wrote 20 bogus, ridiculous, and quite frankly, vile papers, and we submitted them to a number of uh, journals at the top in their fields. And among uh, the papers is we, we, we plagiarized Adolf, a chapter from Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, we had two, one and we took out, we took out Jew and we put in white male. And then the other one, we just rewrote some of the words and just we rewrote some of the words Just for the record. I was actually, they brought me up on charges of plagiarism. I completely pled guilty to it. And then, I mean, it's black and white. I play plagiarized. And then they said, you're not guilty. And the reason, the, the reason what, that they said that what, I was this not is, guilty is because if they found me guilty, then the journal would have published Mein Kampf. The, what? Right, mm. the very journals whose narratives they want to forward about power dynamics and race and, you know, for example, racism being the ordinary every, everyday state of affairs, etc. So I'm, I'm the only plagiarist. Like even the way, even, even in his own like telling of the story, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> um, so far. <laughs> can I just jump to, to James? Because I feel like you mm. will have a, a, a different sense of where the problem is. I mean, if, if I ask you that question, what are you most worried about? What mm. do you think the problem is? Mm. Well, I don't think it's plagiarism. I mean, that's been the kind of the immediate trigger for this debate and all of the discussions in the United States. I mean, I don't think, I think they're sort of mi missing the target if plagiarism is, is the sort of, is, is the key theme. Um, nor is it, I think, a problem of really aff affirmative action. I mean, the, the problem was that the president of Harvard was the top DEI commissar, uh, head of the Office for Diversity, which she basically spearheaded and was the, the architect of, that she was appointed in the first place to run the most influential arguably the most famous Why? And, and the wealthiest university uh, in the world. So that's that sort of, I think, getting the plagiarism stuff. Wait a minute. Why, why was that a problem? They had to appoint somebody, and they, they seem to have fucking promoted from within. If your problem was just that she ran the diversity department beforehand, well, and your problem, maybe not even with her and her qualifications, maybe your problem is that there's a diversity uh, fucking department at all or something, I guess. And I, maybe there is a big problem in the United States and in higher education in the UK. My suspicion is it's probably not. I mean, I think the sort of deterrence, and the incentive structures are, 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 are sort of well in place. Uh, and I think plagiarism is, is not, not really the problem. I mean, 
inevitably, in a culture that prizes intellectual conformity and groupthink, everything is plagiarized. <laughs> in a way, you have to sort of signal conformity to an ideology through by taking out the kind of the woke idiolect and, you know, always looking... Now, explaining the same concept in your own words is the opposite of plagiarism. ...sociology through a pretty, an increasingly narrow ideological prism. So, to that extent, you know, there's an awful lot of plagiarism around. There's a, at least there's not very, very little originality, very, very, very little novelty. So, what is the problem? Well, I think the key problem, I mean, it depends what you think universities are for. I mean, in terms of research and education, it's clear there's a, there is a serious problem. And it's not just because of the Mickey Mouse disciplines that are, that are sort of engulfing... The, the Mickey Mouse discipline. This guy must be a real hit with his colleagues. The universities in the UK uh, and the US. It's it's also the sort of the main disciplines are being corrupted. So I mean, you know, which ones are the main disciplines? Too strong a word, but I mean, take something like uh, I don't know, law. You know, jurisprudence. There, there's going to be an you know a, a dominant orthodoxy in favour of some kind of judicial activism. The idea this sort of will be Wait, producing now law. In law will basically think of the courts as an agent for a certain kind of social engineering. Now, there are perfectly, there's a perfectly reasonable case to be made for that within academia. But what you're seeing is a sort of spiraling effect on those kinds of issues. And similarly in English, you know, there's clearly a preponderance towards, even in the very best English departments, there's clearly a, a, sort, of, a sort of leaning towards looking at literature through post-colonial lenses or through, through feminist lenses or trans lenses, whatever it might be. Sure. And now that's, you know, that's okay. There's, there's, you don't really want to root all of that out, but it's clear that the balance is, so is, is out, of, out of kilt. Is it uh, the uniformity that troubles you, or is it the sense that there's not neutrality, that it's sort of become activist as an institution? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a mixture of both. I mean, so institutions are dropping their commitment to neutrality on issues that really they shouldn't be expressing any views on at all. So we saw this over the, the, in the wake of the George, George Floyd uh, affair in, in 2020, uh, you know, long, long statements of kind of institutional genuflection. Uh, you know, fast forward, you know, the, the Gaza, Gaza last year, in like October, then there was a kind of deafening silence by, by contrast. So there's an abandonment of institutional neutrality. And in the sort of pursuit of these kind of organizing horizons of diversity, inclusion and, and equality, there is clearly a chilling effect on those who would want to challenge uh, uh, research looked at on, through, through those lenses. So there's a kind of official version of what... <clears throat> but there's a difference. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not, I'm not part of academia, but I would think that there's a big difference between challenging, like via peer review or whatever, the, somebody's work, the work that they did, Versus just suggesting that the whole field, the whole endeavor therein is bad because it makes you sad that we do black studies. You know what I'm saying? I don't think that's the same thing. You can definitely challenge someone's work. That's what peer review is supposed to be for. That's the whole point of it is for other people to, you know, take a look at what you're doing, challenge it, hopefully make you better at it. That's not the same. People are supposed to do that within the field. Absolutely. He, I think, means that he's from outside of this field that he wants, he thinks that it's that, that he should just be able to challenge the whole notion of something like queer studies or gender studies. I mean, he didn't say that, but it seems like that's what he's saying. Deviants from it are excluded. Or Absolutely. Heterodoxy is effectively held in, 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 in deep suspicion. It doesn't pay to be heterodox, as, it, as used to be the case. Um, and so, so for yeah. you, it's not a left-right thing for you, especially that that you think it's become kind of 
captured by far left ideology, especially even though you might be considered a conservative, you would like to see more balance or, or more diversity of opinion. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the group, you know, there are sort of tipping points. And once groupthink gets beyond a certain, you know, I think an intellectual culture where you've got maybe a spread of 70, 30 on a contentious issue would be absolutely fine. Uh, but where you're getting, you know, 80, 20, now you can suddenly get a sort of spiraling effect where the minority is just not, the social costs are just going to be too high yeah. to speaking out. Oh, could you give an really example? Where the issues are of clear public. Give an example. Just an, any example. Just give an example. So you just think of the last few years of COVID and lockdowns, climate, race, gender critical beliefs, etc., etc., bioethics. All of these areas are the area are the kind of the no-go areas, precisely the areas that universities should be steering the public on. Difficult ethical is, uh, areas, difficult technical areas, and that's we you know that with the public university is failing in its job to the taxpayer and to the general public to to, to perform that vital so you're service. Sort of, you're, you're doing your bit in real life here because you you've come out as a conservative pretty much I would say in the last oh stop using that terminology in particular and yet you're at the heart of a very prestigious institution. Like anybody that couldn't have figured out this guy was a Tory was an idiot. What's life like as a, a dissident from the dominant orthodoxy? Life is pretty good, actually. I mean, I should say I've, I've had no problems at all from the university itself, as is often the case. I mean, there, there's a kind of disproportionately vocal minority among the students, among some colleagues. Um, and so there are, there are kind of tantrums about various things I do or various people I invite or various things I say. Jordan Peterson, for example. Right. But, but why invite Jordan Peterson to your classroom? point after after a number of colleagues cancelled him it was important to get him back and so cancelled he wasn't no, invited no adverse consequences at all to, to doing that and a number of other things that, that I've done it have, have you know passed without without much you know consequence and so so they don't tut in the corridors and in the cloisters <laughs> you don't get no eye doubt. rolls in the oh, canteen I'm sure, I'm sure I get an awful lot of that but I'm pretty immune to it and um what the interesting thing is that there isn't, you know, the, the, the group think is kind of illusory. I mean, what you've got is the radical vocal minority. And then you've got a sort of, then you have, you know, two conservatives, maybe. I mean, I, you know, I could count on one hand the number of people I've met in Cambridge who, who sort of share my basic outlook on the world. But you've got this middle silenced majority who just really want to get on with their lives and don't... They're not you know, silenced. You know, are, are worried about... I think like what he's... <clears throat> He's talking about people who do mostly just want to go to work and live their lives and shit, <clears throat> but they're not silenced. They're just not fucking engaged. That en they're just not that engaged politically. That's different than being silenced. Nobody's silencing them. They just choose. A lot of people just choose not to be super politically engaged. They vote every four years or whatever it is, and that for them that's fine, and that's fine. And we'll and we'll and we'll keep quiet. But that so you basically it's the, the classic. Um, it's it's a classic example of all totalitarian regimes. You, there's a there's a brittleness to them. Um, I mean, if you think of uh, I don't know if you if you imagine yourself being in in Berlin in early 1989 and, and telling somebody you know in 10 months time all of this is going to be over. You know nobody would have believed you. But the idea which was very brittle. No one really believed it. Uh, and so the sort of, you know, stated preferences are very, very different from revealed preferences when an ideology, when you get these sorts of purity spirals. And so it could be that this, this comes to an end. And if it does come to an end, it would, that it would come to an end very quickly. So there's some hints of optimism there that we'll come back to. Kathleen, you've obviously been at the sharp end of this. 
Um, I think it'd be really helpful just to start with that. You know, your, your, the experience you had at Sussex was, was a sort of um, ideology and an, an enforcement of that ideology that led to you not being able to work there anymore. Um, was it groupthink? Was it meanness? What was it? The other thing that's going on here that I don't like is these are like these these are professors, and it's it's crazy that they they were all essentially they've all been essentially asked to do something they don't want to do at their job, and I'm not really I'm like oh cry me a fucking river like because people are asked to do things all the time they don't want to do at their job that's most of what most people's jobs are. It's very much like James just said, I think, although it's impossible to get people to say this, but I think most people were either neutral or vaguely um, for me. Like occasionally people would come up and whisper. But, 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 what? Most people? Like you're just guessing. You're just fucking vibes based. I actually don't know in the UK whether most people were neutral for her, against her. I think most people in the UK didn't, still don't know who the fuck she is. <clears throat> the only reason we know who the fuck she is is because we're like... Um, uh, too online, terminally online. But to me, keep going, you know, things like that. But um, there's a small group of extremely vocal, uh, narcissistic academics who are on social media a lot and at like meetings you? a lot. And um, they have no, there's no disincentive for them to be absolutely vile about me to their students, to colleagues, to administrators, and to whip up student sentiment against me uh, <coughs> I think those students protested you all by themselves I think they the students that you're talking about they do in fact have agency and decided to uh, speak up about uh, what what you're doing and saying lady um, and I mean I, I think listening to what you've both said I think um, it, the, the real the real thing that we need to sever is the link between activism and careerism in universities, it is 100% in your interest, or it was the last time I was in a university, to be an activist, even in the promotion criteria. And I'm talking about the university I was familiar with, but in the promotion criteria, it would say, are you a good ally? You know, you, you, could, you could get points in your promotional case by showing how moral you were and how um, you thought the right things. And Well, no, it's are you, are you a good ally isn't about what you think. It's about how you behave. And I don't think they were asking, are you a good ally? I think they, the question would probably be more some more along the lines of, you know, are you, you, are you doing right by the students, uh, no matter their uh, religious or uh, racial background, something like that. It would be some question. It wouldn't be like, are you woke or whatever the fuck she's talking about here. Um, so that, that, that obviously that's going to, a, it's going to deter heterodoxy because it's going to end up having professional consequences, not just social consequences. And so much of um, academic... But again, in other jobs that aren't like at a university, yeah, if you, if, if you like say a bunch of bigoted shit to the other people that are there, be they people you work with, um, contractors who were there, uh, your boss, customers, yeah, you're going to get fired. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand why like being a university professor would be any different is based on relying on other people to let you through the gate you know if you you need your stuff in in prestigious journals you need to get the right sorts of grants you need to be on the right sorts of committees so you can't afford to alienate people in those ways if you've got if you're young and you want like, to get on lady this, <clears throat> that's how any a bureaucracy works yeah if you fucking if nobody in the bureaucracy likes you it's going to be hard for you to fucking climb up in that bureaucracy 
Higher do you, harder for you to get higher up in that layer cake. I don't know. Fucking, fucking, I guess it sucks, but like, it's just the, the way bureaucracy is. And that's important. Um, so that's what and, people mean when they talk about capture then. Yeah. That somehow that a group had worked out the mechanics of taking over an institution. Sort of instinctive. Like I don't think they actually <laughs> thought it through very carefully. I think it's just that. Well, if they haven't thought it I mean, through very carefully, maybe they just don't like you. And they didn't have to think too much about it. They think, oh, they're like, oh, fucking Professor Stock. God damn it. Is she coming? There's, there's many other layers to this which make it very complicated. So one is that a lot of academics are in, unable to face confrontation and really just want to get on with their 16th century manuscript or whatever and don't want to be on social media. Most academics aren't on social media and they're like, oh, I can't go on there. But that leaves the field free for some, a few people to be extremely uh, influential. There's also um, a genuine fear of um, upsetting students for number, a number of reasons. One, uh, is, one uh, is because those are, these people are fucking teenagers. The undergrads are mostly teenagers. And your job, your, your job is to educate, but your job is also to like uh, um, be uh, chill and like a professional. <laughs> your job and not piss off all the fucking students. Yeah, if all the students hate you, it's going to be hard to teach, lady. Like, what the fuck? Uh, fees, like, since the caps came off, all universities are in competition with each other. Some universities are undoubtedly about to go under financially. Um, I, I'm sure Cambridge and Oxford, different kettle of fish, but in the universities I was familiar with, it, um, people were terrified for years. You know, we couldn't even photocopy. <laughs> there was just budgets being we cut all the time. And then there's also a massive specter of student mental health because nobody, including in the government, can work out whether we're in a loco, in loco parentis, whether we're supposed to be looking after anxious students. There's no, uh, as far as I can see, there's no... Um, you are a trusted elder. If you are a professor teaching classes, you are a trusted elder for most of these students. That is your role. You're also an educator. But yeah, you, you, you are a trusted elder. Yes, absolutely. Yep, these kids—they're—they're they're eighteen, or I think in the UK, at sixteen, you become an adult in a lot of ways. Um, but these—they're still teenagers, and you are—you should be a trusted elder. That's part of your role as a professor. If you're not doing that, then you're a shit professor. You're fit to study, so you can come with massive mental health problems and just be waved through, and then arrive in the classroom saying, I am too anxious to be asked questions. I can't talk about, I, I don't want to hear about this very difficult subject. I want a trigger warning. And if you're desperate for their fees, <laughs> you know, there's no incentive like how many, to actually like, manage that situation. How many times has this happened? Like in the way she's, she's like describing these things in a very caricatured way. Where I don't think it's like one particular thing comes up and then like a student's like, oh, I don't want to answer your question. I have anxiety. I think it's, it's going to, it's going to, these things are probably like a preponderance of events. Well, and there's more and more and more students with severe mental health problems or, or just diagnosed mental health problems like anxiety and depression, which you might think are normal for students, but you mm. just can't tell anymore. No one can tell. So, um, so actually, it, that's it, dissuading heterodoxy and, you know, saying the truth <laughs> quite often. That also muddies, because this is sometimes cast as being a kind of right-wing 
uh, attack mm-hmm. on the universities. In fact, Harvard and those institutions now, that's very much the line they're taking, which is this is a conservative conspiracy <laughs> campaign against us. Yes. So in a way, what you're saying is the opposite. That it's- Harvard had the kind of money, too, and the kind of institutional power. They could have stood tall for that lady and been like, we're not firing her. I don't give a fuck. She's qualified. She will not be, resi- she will not be leaving until she chooses to leave or if some other thing comes up marketization yeah. of universities, <clears throat> which is a, a conservative difference. type of idea, you might think, has, has kind of backfired. Well, I completely think that's true. I mean, you just, in my particular area of expertise, which is sex and gender and the way that um, HR was just taken over by... Oh, Peter Bogosian thinks that your whole area of expertise is um, uh, just a non-valid uh, thing to study, your gender studies. Peter Bogosian thinks that you shouldn't even been at the university in the first place. That's what I would infer from what he said earlier. Kite mark schemes and award ceremonies and every university saying, we want to get into the top 100 Stonewall. And basically, as other people have said, getting Stonewall to mark your homework, handing out your policies to Stonewall. And Stonewall come back and said, no, no, you've mentioned the word woman here. You're changing rooms aren't inclusive. You know, have you considered your your teaching material? And in my university, it said in the... Well, that have you considered your teaching material is actually a valid question for uh, any administrator at a university. They're like, no, I haven't thought about that much. And you're like, really? What the fuck do you do all day? <laughs> Policy that trans people had to be represented in a positive light or something. That was built into one of our policies. So no other group was treated like that. And no one seemed to question it. Because the thing is, it appeals, or they think it appeals to students. They think... We want to be ideal. We want to appeal to idealistic young queer people, particularly in Brighton. So let's just go with it, and everybody else is going with it anyway. So who who would we be to? So it's partly the students, the tail not, wagging the dog. It's not even again. It's not that students are demanding this. Um, but you just said they are, were, and again, that specific students were. Now you know you're saying they're not. And the very same dynamic of a few people being very vocal. <laughs> uh, universities not having the mechanisms to do proper polling of what students think. So they have, in my view, um, ridiculous kind of student reps, which, again, produces a careerist, activist type of student who comes into the meeting with, uh, with the, the lecturers and says, we want this, we want that, we want trigger warnings, we, you know, this person's transphobic. Is that what the student reps are doing? And, and, like the, the student, the, if there's like students at the table for like major decisions at the university, are they just coming in there and like reading off a list of demands? Is that what's happening? <clears throat> I'm fairly confident that's not what's happening and the teachers just go, oh, okay, and change all their policies. (laughs) One thing we haven't talked about that much, I really want to come on to what might be done about all of these interlocking issues, but it feels like we have to spend a moment on the the recent controversy around Palestinian, pro-Palestinian protests, what should be allowed. That's really what started this whole recent wave and ultimately led to the resignation of Claudine Gay and, and the others. Does anyone here share my slight concern that by sort of weaponizing the same tactics that the left have been using to silence opinions they find unsavory on this question of Israel, sort of the the political right has now lost the argument as well. And it sort of establishes a new principle that nasty things shouldn't be said on universities. What's your view, Pete? Do you you think, has that been a step forward or a step back, that whole free speech? Uh, so just to, to rewind that tape a bit, that's not why Claudine Gay resigned. Cla- right. Claudine Gay resigned because unquestionably she is a plagiarist. She mm. took ideas that were not hers 
and she accredited, true? made them as if they were hers. And it's worth noting, she also plagiarized her acknowledgments, <laughs> which is utterly astonishing. Okay, now now back to the issue. So, but the energy was kicked off by that hearing, that's and that's correct. why there was such focus on the plagiarism issue. So it was sort of secondary effect. Uh, didn't <clears throat> wasn't this another case where um, ghouls on Twitter? basically told us exactly what they were going to do. They were going to try to tar and feather this lady with plagiarism ac accusations to get her to resign. And then they did exactly that, and nobody even seemed to notice that, that they just told us what they were going to do. And so the problem is that universities, and, and again, I can't speak to this context, uh, but it does seem to be in the Anglosphere, led by the United States, the Anglos, what the, the fuck is the Anglosphere? I mean, I think I know what he, I think I know what he means. He means like where they're fucking, I guess, British people. Is that if they never said anything, if they never involved themselves in politics, if, if they didn't have any um, diversity, equity, and inclusion statements, there would be no problem with it, with those responses. But the problem is that they selectively pick they decided what they wanted to, to choose, <clears throat> and then they were vocal about it. And the, the principle in which they invoked was a, an oppressor oppressed. And so they view, largely, they view Jews as whites, they view Israel as a colonial power, as a manifestation of, the, of colonial values by white people against dark people or brown people. Also within this, this worldview, they view Muslims as oppressed, and so there's a whole. Well, the United States and <clears throat> and the United States is allies, but bombing the shit out of Muslim country, majority Muslim countries. For most of my life, bombs are a form of oppression. I think worldview that goes into understanding why they said what they said. So if you understand and you've read the literature, then it makes perfect sense for why they would say that. But it's been, it's just been this huge backlash, hasn't it? And you've got this guy called Christopher Rufo yeah. in the US who's been extraordinarily successful, directly campaigning against these figures. And he overtly says he's using the playbook that he's learned off the left. And I'm just, I'm wondering here, you know, is there a danger that all these institutions, any sense of neutrality is just mm. lost and it becomes whichever political campaign is more effective mm -hmm. captures them? Mm. I mean, I share your worry, Freddie. And, you know, the irony here is if you're know, looking back at those hearings, I mean, their responses, you know, are these, is it appropriate to be calling for X, Y, Z and saying, well, it depends on the context, was basically right. Because, yes, it will depend on the context. Mm. If, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing uh, going on a pro-Palestine march on October the 6th. It's very different going on a pro-Palestine march on October the 8th outside the Israeli embassy, firing fireworks at it and praying and celebrating. And right, but this didn't happen on a campus. Now you're, now you're, this didn't happen on campus. This happened in front of an embassy. Being a kind of state of jubilation. I mean, those, and calling, and calling for from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. So it does depend. But that's like America, from sea to shining sea. We have, everybody has a version of fuck. Every, I think, every, doesn't everybody have a version of that shit? Some fucking patriotic thing that talks about that. This land is your land, this land is my land, all that shit. Like, doesn't everybody have some fucking version of that shit? 
context. And but you know, freedom within freedom of speech within law is a you know it's a, it's a, it's a well accepted paradigm. And what's legal and what's illegal speech is has also been pretty clear. But should you be allowed so, to say from the river to the sea in Cambridge on October the eighth? Uh, you know, when the blood of the victims has, has barely run cold, I'd say there's a there's a much stronger case for censoring that kind of that kind of behaviour. Wait, why? In, you know, and but if, people if, knew what was about to happen. Like they knew every like people knew people were like, uh oh, uh oh, all the BB and the Lacoud party they're gonna they're gonna overreact to this and um, overreact was a. Um, I think just what people would have thought would have been a basic overreaction would have been a, a, a far less of a bloodbath than what we've seen. It's clearly intimidating Jewish students. There's a stronger case for it than if that kind of behavior is happening on, on October the 6th. Now? Today? Now, I, I'd be very, yeah, I'd be very, I mean, I absolutely, you know, students should be able to speak freely on the issue now. I mean, I, I, wait a minute. Why is it different? They, they, the students, everybody knew what was about to happen. <clears throat> well, we didn't, I mean, I fucking, I didn't think it was going to be like what we've seen. Right. But people knew it was about to happen. And I, 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 I think one's got to be very, very, very. Yeah, somebody in chat said uh, Israel uses that for their own stuff. Every, I just, I, like I said, I think a lot, not, not every, but every culture, but I think every, like America is from sea to shining sea. Doesn't it mean the same fucking thing? Isn't that the same thing? And it doesn't say like we'll be, and it says, and it also says that they'll be free. They just, this is that's like a, that's like a very American sounding thing to me. The uh, not to be heavy handed in the other direction. Yeah. So, so I share your concerns, and I don't. I think you know their their actual responses in that hearing, you know, they were smugly delivered, but yeah. basically correct. Smugly delivered. Why was it smug? I watched that. I watched parts of that. We didn't run it on the uh, on the show because. To not, I mean, everybody's talking about that, and there are people who are much better informed than I am. And you know, my position is pretty clear, I think, but we're not spending a lot of time on that. But I think the only reason he thinks they were smug is because they were black, and I think the word he might be looking for here is uppity. Kathleen, I agree with James, and I've written as much in a couple of places. Um, I mean, the principle of academic freedom is just it's it can't just be invoked every time. <laughs> you agree with the sentiments being suppressed. Um, it's you're setting a precedent if you just dive in. And I was absolutely. But I, the, I, was, I think that so my understanding of academic freedom is you are free to pursue your work academically. I don't think part of academic freedom, like in her case, is just being a shit to the students. I'm not sure that's what people mean when they say academic freedom. Or in Peter Bogosian's case, my understanding is that he. Uh, skirted some regulation around uh, doing um, uh, research or uh, testing on uh, human subjects. And I'm not sure that that falls under the uh, category of academic freedom. I was quite shocked by um, some people that would call themselves allies, allies of mine and have gone on and on and on about freedom of speech, apparently forgetting everything they just said um, on even October the 8th, actually. Uh, context is everything. Um, it isn't the same. I mean, I don't, I don't have a dog in the fight, but it is not the same thing to say um, uh, Palestine should be free is not the same thing as calling for genocide. You know, there's about ten moves potentially there that you would have to. Do. Damn, damn! Look at her being the uh, 
her being the reasonable one, being like, actually, saying Palestine should be free isn't really call for genocide, which is true. And hmm. you would have, you can't just shut that down and say this means that, and you can't say that. And the reason I think that is because I'm very, very familiar with people taking my speech when I say trans women are men, for instance, and inferring all sorts of. Uh, um, there's no no inference there. Actually, you're just like just you're just like being needlessly disrespectful. Actually, you're just being like you're just you're just fucking that. again. When she did all this, this was in the context of trans trans people who were uh, like undergrads, a lot of them, who were protesting her because she's supposed to be a trusted adult at the university. That's what these people are supposed to be. Yeah, they're the te they're a fucking professor. They're supposed to be doing research, all this, but oh, you, you know, you you want a good relationship between the the faculty and the the students. It's important. So yeah, actually, I mean, you. you Nobody's arresting you for saying that, but the university could be like, listen, you're being an asshole. Stop being an asshole. Terrible, uh, immoral context, uh, content from it uh, without any consultation of the context and what I meant by it and why I said it and so on. And it, you know, so it almost felt reminiscent of when you were. Yeah, I, well, I can see out. the move. I can see, and, and, and it's quite strange watching people who are very, very clear to support me when I say I'm a gender critical person suddenly saying, ah, oh, but when they say this, they really mean this. Well, I, I've, got, I've written a whole book about meaning and intention, and I think intention has got something to do with it, and you can't foreclose intention just by looking at very... Oh, shit, why do I agree with her on Like, this is the only thing I agree with her on, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I don't care that much about intention. Like, I get mad at people when they're like, ah, oh, bad faith. I'm like, shut the fuck up. But the thing about it is the only reason I think she's doing this is because she feels like almost she has to if she wants to seem consistent. So, but again, that's me trying to divine her intent. So, so yeah. <laughs> you, you remain a free speech weaver now. I'm afraid I do, yeah. Um, I want to I think about if there is... The, the question we put on the poster is, are the universities doomed? Is university doomed as an institution? And I have a feeling, Pete, the that you think doomed. the might be yes. So give us the case for burn them all down, the institution is... Oh, there's doomed. no case for that. Saving. Too bad we don't have two hours for that question. So I do believe that they should be all burned down, and here's why. <laughs> so, so first of all, I just, I just want a quick show of hands. Just, I'm just curious. The number of, uh, the percentage of, of people who hold PhDs who have plagiarized their dissertations, who thinks it's under 5% raise their hand? One. One in the whole room. Wow. Who thinks it's under 20%? Okay, that's the mode. Most people. Okay, so, so I mentioned before at the start it's worth talking about. So you have people who have cheated. You have the institutions who have protected people who have cheated. You've had institutions and administrators who have been hoodwinked by monstrously idiotic ideas. There's literally nothing interesting about these ideas. And they're put forward by profoundly mediocre minds okay but this larger... this idea that like he is the arbiter of who is smart like <clears throat> i i think i'm pretty good at like learning new things i pick i pick up uh, on things pretty quick but i'm not going to run around and like i haven't decided that that's what intelligence is right if other people are slower to learn i'm not like oh this is a mediocre mind or this person's stupid because i don't know what that person might be good at that i'm not 
or where that person might excel that I might uh, have some problems or whatever, because I just don't know. And so like <clears throat> this idea that we have great minds and like mediocre minds or whatever, this is a very, this, you end up in some pretty fucked up places. Like when you, when that's like the, your starting point you, there, you end up in some pretty fucked up places. Problem in the corruption of academic literature. See if I can do this in a minute. <clears throat> in order to get promoted, you need to publish. In order to publish, this goes back to Freddie, your comment about institutional capture. What does it mean to be captured? In order to publish something, you have to, peer-reviewed publishing, it's not the same as publishing as unheard, unheard or the Telegraph or what have you. It's a, an article that your peers who are experts in the field view as worthy to be added to the canon of literature. So as a general rule, seven papers in seven years, in general, will get one tenure. Okay. Okay. You cannot publish a paper, particularly in the humanities, that runs contra to the narrative. So they're very specific power relations, gender relations, very specific dynamics. Kathleen is very familiar with those in her, in her discipline. But then, okay, I, first of all, I don't think this is true. There are probably tons of people writing papers that are disagreeing with conclusions that other people have made in their papers and stuff. But well, I don't think, what this guy doesn't, what I don't, what I'm guessing this guy doesn't like is that, um, that, if people think what you're saying is bullshit and they're your peers that they get to be like, well, this is bullshit. And then, uh, people are like, Oh, well, uh, your peer review was pretty bad. You might want to go back to the drawing board friendo. Okay. So you have entire bodies of academic literature that have been corrupted. You cannot publish something that goes against the narrative. You cannot publish, for example, something that says, uh, uh, you know, the number of unarmed black men shot by police is, is, is proportionate to the number of... Uh, Roland Fryer tried something similar to that at Harvard. But that's because proportional... Notice how he stopped? Check this out. Watch this. Uh, uh, you know, the number of unarmed black men shot by police is, is, is proportionate to the number of... Uh, Roland Fryer tried something... Proportional to the number of... And then he stopped. Did you hear that? Because he was about, he couldn't finish the sentence. <laughs> there was no way to finish that sentence. Something similar to that at Harvard. And by the way, he was the victim of Claudine Gay's witch hunt. Okay, so you have bodies of literature. Was his data inaccurate? Proportional to the what? Per like he didn't finish. I don't know what you're saying this guy tried to publish on. And he stopped himself because either one, he doesn't know what the guy tried to publish or two, he does know what the guy tried to publish and knows that it's uh, incorrect or that it make, that it plays games with the numbers. That have been corrupted. 50%, think about, really think about this. 50% of papers in psychology, it's called a replication crisis, cannot be replicated. 50%, are you, are you kidding me? You mean half of half of the stuff, the, of the work that, that people go into a clinical setting with, the tools that they go to help people? You mean half of those can't be? So, um, <clears throat> the um, Matt Brown from Decoding the Gurus actually has talked a, a 
bit about the replication crisis. And it is a real thing. Um, but I, I listened to Matt Brown talk about it, and it does not sound like Peter Bogosian and uh, Matt Brown is a, a pretty, pretty well-respected um, psychologist in um, Australia. And he does a lot of work on like gambling and uh, like policy around uh, gambling and gambling addiction and the psychology of that stuff there. And he was talking about it, and it was actually kind of interesting to listen to him talk about it. Because I'd only heard these wackadoodles talk about it, but listening to somebody a little bit more measured and uh, somebody who's currently working in the field of psychology in addition to being um, a university professor, listening to him talk about it was a lot different and it made a lot more sense. And he had the, his critiques were, he, was, he didn't think it was good, but he had some explanations for why it's the case sometimes. It was just uh, overall a pretty good listen. I wish I remembered. I think it might have been one of their in one of their like decoding academia series or whatever where they uh, talked about Matt's um, um, academic um, career. Uh, I thought it was really interesting, and I, I learned some stuff I didn't know actually. But he didn't just st- say, "Oh, uh, half of the stuff can't isn't," and it's not that it can't be; it's that it's not re- it has not been replicated. And he was saying that there's like a disincentive to like in some cases to. Uh, do work that someone's always already done. Like if you're trying to become prominent, you want to do new work. So there's some disincentive there and that um, it's hard to get. <clears throat> sometimes it's hard to get grant money. If you're trying to or like retread something that somebody already like did, especially if it was recent, there's all kinds of institutional problems there, but it's not just that these people are all wackadoodles and that they made it all up or whatever. Okay. Not that perfectly. That's astonishing. And we're teaching those, and I go all around the world, and I say, who's familiar with the replication crisis? Who's a psychology major? Who's familiar with the replication crisis? Nobody has any idea what it is. Nobody. Nobody. I probably ask that. Like, if I know what the fuck the replication crisis is, and I'm 20, how far? 24 years out of academia entirely? At times, the university's clueless. You can mitigate that very quickly by putting it in the syllabus to be in class. Look, we don't know if this is true. It's our best guess. 50% chance you're flipping the dice. Okay. So no, 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 no. Just because 50% of them haven't, just because these, something hasn't been replicated doesn't mean it's a flip of the coin. That's what peer review is for. Peer review is part of the process and replication should be part of the process. And I do think that it's important that that gets fixed. Uh, primarily so that this people like this can't like dishonestly use it now. No, no. He's like, oh, now it's just a flip of the coin because... I don't know, half of the stuff can't be replicated. That doesn't make sense. Even on its own terms, that doesn't make sense. Institutions doomed. You have a situation in which my, my personal feeling is that they're around, I could be wrong about this, we'll know soon enough, about 10% of academicians have plagiarized in, in the humanities, probably lower in the sciences. In the sciences, you probably see data fraud as more of a phenomenon. Okay. You, the, the reason that there's a legitimation crisis. It's Habermas's 1973 phrase from a paper, the German philosopher. The reason that there's a crisis in the legitimacy of institutions is because those institutions are not worthy of our trust. They've betrayed public trust. They've become... So this is starting to get a little bit into the Scientology territory. And I'm surprised Scientology hasn't jumped on this shit, to be honest. I don't. The, the the I don't know if the institution of psychology, to the extent that it exists as like a monolith or whatever, is worthy of my trust or not. 
If I go to see a fucking psychologist, I care whether or not I think that person is worthy of my trust. But they're not an academic. They're doing, uh, cl- they're doing clinical work or even just talk therapy. So, knowledge production are fundamentally compromised, and when they're fundamentally compromised, it's like was it the horse in Alice in Wonderland that runs off furiously in all directions, right? So, but if the what are you going to? I mean, we'd obviously by saying burn them all down, we don't. We're not actually talking about physically burning them down. <laughs> what is it that you suggest we do in that situation? Well, there's only one thing. Look, look. It is better for people. I, well, one thing we can do is we we can start plugging vocational schools, right? But it is better to for people. Dan Denon picked up a, a famous phrase: "If it's not worth doing, it's not worth doing well." If it's not worth doing, it's not worth doing well. Ooh, I think Dan Dennett has had some nasty things to say about these uh, intellectual dark web people before. I could be mistaken. I think it was Dan Dennett who was like, these guys are just jerks. It is not worth learning a process that takes you away from reality. You would be far better if you literally looked at a wall. <laughs> you, you would be. Then if you learned something that took you... That but he's divorced. sitting there shitting all over the woman in the middle's field reality and in social civil society. So you have no hope that this problem can be corrected, that these institutions can start becoming more worthwhile again? No. So not only do I have no hope, but if you want any kind of hope, you have to burn them down. So what is the alternative to that? The alternative is, and Kathleen is also a founding faculty fellow at the University of Austin and other places. Yeah, but I don't agree with you. Okay. (laughs) The University of Austin, if the Professors here were good enough for the kids at Epstein Island. They're good enough for your kids, too. I'll tell you my solution. My solution is, rather than look, we have institutions, academic institutions, that are ideology mills. Their primary function, and their primary function of people who Mm. teach there, is to discharge some deranged ideological mission. So So start new ones. Okay, so start, start new ones, but it's insufficient to start new ones. New ones in a capitalist framework can put pressure to, to leverage themselves for other institutions to have some kind of a corrective mechanism. But right now there's no corrective mechanism, so you have to start new institutions. Stephen Blackwood was here when we last did our event. He started Ralston College. More institutions are popping up. But right now, what we have is a situation that is that is literally teaching people that the foundations of Western civil society are cancerous and poisonous, and that thinking has metastasized throughout the system. James, you'd probably agree with the, the last bit there to do with uh, forgetting the, uh, the, the canon of Western civilization. I'm guessing you don't want to burn Cambridge down, given that they're Absolutely not, and yet the cannon is under fire. But I just, I mean, it's worth pointing out that, you know, I I agree with people, you know, the replication crisis, which goes back, what, 2005, when that guy first published his paper that said, what, more than half of studies in social sciences were not not replicable. Um, Not replicable or were were not replicated? The social sciences. Now that's... Because one, like, replicable means it's possible to replicate and rep if it's they're not replicated that means they have not been replicated those are so it seems like a seems like a weird thing to quibble about but it actually matters which which it is what are the other you know lots of lots more to the humanities and just the social sciences who are kind of both pretending to be scientists and pretending to be kind of in the humanities <laughs> um but so it's, it's not i don't think it is as bad in say english and in history and in law uh, and in philosophy, but the, the, the dynamics are, are still the ideological um, 
uh, sort of constrictions are, are are in place. But the replication crisis is not primarily an ideologically driven. It's a, it's a sort of it's the incentive structures that are. And the yeah, it's a function of university architecture. Makes it a but, but plot for us how we get from here to a. Good oh, this guy on the this guy center just to right of the center was about to say what I was saying is that the incentive structure is fucked up. It's because like you want to publish something new, you don't want to like it's hard to get funding to retread old old ground. Well, so I mean, I think we are already in a good place in the sense that I think there are extramural bits of infrastructure that can pretty well replicate what we want the social sciences to do for the public square. I mean, you know, here in London, I think it's the same in Washington. It's really, you know, think tanks. So a lot of the... Wait, what? You think tanks? You think think tanks are just going to replace, like, the fucking humanities department at a university? What the fuck? The Heritage Foundation? Cato? What the fuck? Really sort of politically, policy sort of salient projects in the social sciences that have got real sort of cut through can be replicated by think tanks for public policy and uh, private companies for STEM. Um, so, and that's, that's already happening, I think, um, you know, to some degree. So, in, in a, and now, all parallel universities are starting new institutions. I mean, you know, all, all strength to you, Guys, what you're doing at the University of Austin and, and Wilston. And so your on. fucking world-renowned fucking phrenology department or whatever. <laughs> and and you, you see this sort of pressure occurring in the, you know, the early 19th century when Oxford and Cambridge had a total stranglehold. I, I and other to, universities started to sort of set up. just want to push you a little bit. I know you have to, you know, you are representing Cambridge at this discussion. And I don't expect you to be disproportionately critical of them. But yeah. do you think there are issues serious issues, even in universities like Cambridge, or do you think we're fine? I think we're in a much better place than, say, Harvard or the Big Ivies. I mean, Harvard has got, is, is really a hedge fund with the university attached. It's got $50 billion uh, under assets. You know, Cambridge, okay, I mean, he's not wrong there, but like, like, well, Harvard's still a pretty good university academically. Um, but I mean, he's not wrong that the endowments of these uh, these big legacy Ivy Ivy League universities in the United States are actually kind of a problem because they should be spending that money. Actually, endowment I think is about eight billion, and with that, we still managed to get to pretty much. I think we were you know last year top of one of the one of the two big university rankings, but and and but we're much more responsive to what public criticism and oh. being poorer, more exposed to legal liability. And will be very interesting to see when the new Freedom of Speech Higher Education Act starts really kicking in in August, um, what effect that's going to have on the intellectual climate within the universities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm you know, quietly hopeful that it will have a meaningful impact. Um, uh, now, Do you see what you're doing, which is to be a bit more vocal about your ideas, yeah. even if they don't go along the current of prevailing opinion, do you think that's part of the remedy here? I think so. More people need to speak out and more people need to be confident in not just talking about free speech, but actually exercising their rights to free speech. Uh, and certainly those who've made it into the institutions, uh, I think, have a special moral obligation to uh, you know, test received wisdom and, and to be heterodox, not just for the sake of it, but where they've got heterodox views and, and, and to speak out confidently because... <clears throat> but your job isn't student. to, like, express your personal views. That's not the job of academia and research. Your job isn't, isn't to give your opinion. That's my job, right? 
my job is to give my opinion. This guy's an academic. His job, he may he can give his opinion, but that's not his job. Or you're in that sort of awful twilight zone uh, of the, you know, the postdoc between kind of very kind of precarious existence as, a, as an academic looking for a job and somebody who's won the, won the lottery ticket and got into the institution. You, you know, it's, it's, there's clearly pressure to conform. Um, there's clearly a lot of gatekeeping at okay. applications and, and jo so speaking out job appointment panels. Is part, is part this guy me. works at Cambridge and is complaining about gatekeeping. Get the fuck out of here. They opened the gate for you, friendo. The prescription. Kath, I, I want to ask you, if we've had a conversation here before, and it struck me then that you were extraordinarily generous about the institution that frankly treated you Appallingly. Mm. Um, so among... Don't think they'd say that. <laughs> I'm not trying to get sued for libel. This is the UK, friendo. Thank you. You know, you're. How, how can you. Is it right that you feel still defensive in a way of universities, even the one that you left? Mm, no, not really. <laughs> but okay. I do feel defensive of philosophy. And um, I don't think I agree with you, Peter, that there's sort of bad ideas that we need to root out directly because they're just obviously false and, um, you know, you'd be better off looking at a wall than these ideas because I think you get rid of enormous parts of the history of philosophy if you start going down that route. I think philosophy is, I mean, the question is, what is reality? And in a way, that is what even gender studies academics are trying to answer. Mm -hmm. It's still a philosophical impulse. It's, um, yes, yeah, she caught on to that. She was yes, like, wait a minute, what this guy's saying is just that, I, that my whole field of endeavor was useless. Things is axiomatic that they should be questioning and all that, but they are still trying to engage in, in important metaphysical thoughts that I think we shouldn't just dismiss as... Um, ridiculous, you know, in a sort of brute empiricist kind of way. So what I think we need to do is we'll act more indirectly to try and get the quality of thought. I mean, if we're assuming that the quality of thought, here we go again. No, who decides what the, who does, like, what the fuck? The quality of thought research, because we could actually decide that they're not. Most research produced in the humanities doesn't get read by anybody. You know, not really, literally, sure. like two two people read the average. Zero to one remember. citations yeah. for the average. So you, and it's a it's a preposterous system. It really is. You know, you work for three years, you get multiple edits, you get multiple rejections. <coughs> eventually, it gets published, and no one reads it. Um, so we okay, I mean that's that's yeah, that's that's the fucking okay. So what? Like, yes. About that, but assuming you are trying to produce quality researchers in the humanities, and obviously you want to improve the quality. So you need to sever the link between activism and careerism. You need to develop internal norms somehow which say, no, you can't just go on the internet and uh, produce an ad hominem character assassination of the person that you disagree with intellectually. Wait a minute, but what about fucking this whole freedom of speech thing you were saying before? Now that, wait, what the fuck? And I don't know what they mean by ad hominem. Do they mean like... Uh, do they mean character assessment? I think this person's full of shit because that's not really a, that's not the, might even not be an ad hominem attack. A lot of stuff, it gets confused. It gets real confused here because the ad hominem fallacy is pretty simple, right? Like a simple one. Oh, you know, they could be like, oh, you're a 47 year old man. What do you know? Well, that's the ad hominem fallacy, right? That's saying that I don't know what I'm talking about because of something intrinsic about me. 
They could just be like, I think you're an idiot and you don't know what you're talking about. Well, they've probably insulted me, but that is not the ad hominem fallacy. They just think I'm an idiot and that I don't know what I'm talking about. And it's fine. Actually, either is fine. I don't really care. You have to stick to the arguments. Maybe just ban them from social media. I don't know. But something has to be done to kind of get. <laughs> Wait, what? Now she wants people banned from social media. This is this is dumb. This lady, this lady has not thought this through at all. This kind of knee-jerk moralizing and preening and narcissistic posturing that goes on, that's really partly the problem. You can get a lot of social capital very quickly in universities through very shallow intellectual moves. Mm. So I don't know how exactly we get those norms back. Wait, how do you... Um, but I don't you, think Those are what sense. you think are very shallow intellectual moves. What if somebody's like, well, this person's obviously a piece of shit. Like, okay, now, what is that, shallow intellectually? I mean, sure, I guess they didn't fucking, they didn't, like, say it with a pocket watch in their hand or something. Saying this whole body of thought is illegitimate. The problem isn't necessarily directly that those ideas are there. It's that no other ideas are allowed in. Mm -hmm. um, that you have to kind of, as you said, work within these incredibly narrow parameters as the rules of the game as a starting point, or you won't get anywhere. And that is anti-intellectual. Mm -hmm. And... Final word before we go to our small break. A word about the students. Are they going to have a cocktail party right in the middle of this? Yeah. You're, you've written for us about how you think the kids are all right. Yeah, I do. Uh, I really do. How so? Well, because they're the same as they always have been. Uh, they're the same as they were when you were younger. Um, they're naive and idealistic and curious, and, and many of them are clever. I mean, it's possibly true that too many of them are doing, you know, they're not in the right subjects for because there was a massive expansion of the universities and uh people ended up doing things that perhaps they weren't best suited to but they're still trying and they're still really um argumentative um it's again it's this small number of people are allowed to chill the general environment it's the same dynamic outside universities in every institution there is pretty much mm. yeah um, it's, it's, it's no a bureaucracy yeah like they're describing like I guess it sucks, kind of, but yeah, if the people in the bureaucracy don't like you, it's kind of hard to get ahead. I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, so we have to free them somehow. <laughs> we have to uh, allow them to speak their mind, because I do think that they are frightened now, very frightened of saying what they think, and that's a terrible position to be but in. But you just said they shouldn't be allowed to. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? She just contradicted herself, like, just in, like, a minute person well if they think oh you they should be allowed to say what they think but they shouldn't be allowed to say that someone else is full of shit it's like a one-way street version of free speech free the students and <laughs> save the universities uh, ladies and gentlemen we have 30 minutes to do this um so we're going to take a very short 10 to 15 minute break do get a drink if you want one um or do whatever you need to do downstairs is open as well as here um, if you're watching online, get your questions ready and Flo will ask them. So see you in exactly 50 minutes for the group discussion. Thank you. We'll do the group discussion during the post game, everybody. Um, kind of boring. Uh, thanks, uh, live viewers, for uh, sticking it out. I think the question part might be a little more uh, lively here. I just don't, I just, like at the end, the, the Kathleen Stock sort of gave away the game, right? She was like, well, people shouldn't be silenced, but also they should be silenced. Like, well, people shouldn't be able to call me an idiot, but I should be able to say what I think. But that person that called you an idiot thinks you're an idiot. So they're just saying what 
they think. This all just fucking collapses in on itself when you think about it, just for even five fucking seconds. If you think about it from the point of view that none of these people are a victim and that everybody's out there, nobody actually has to shut the fuck up. No matter how much people will tell you to shut the fuck up, if you probably should, doesn't mean you gotta. And I think these people really don't like the shut the fuck up part of all of this. And, you know, free speech, hate to be the one to tell people this. It includes the freedom for someone to tell you to shut the fuck up or that you can go fuck yourself. So any version of that, actually. So again, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, if you're interested in the rest of the show, uh, patreon.com slash echoplex, $5 more or eplex.store. <clears throat> or if you're a cheapskate, I don't really mean that. You can just email me. You can find my email, email me. I'll get, I'll send you the MP4 of this. No problem. I'm not actually paywalling a fucking MP4 over $5 a month. That's weird. Anyway, this is uh boomers by Periscope. I'm going to change the contents of my drink, change the lighting here in the studio, and we'll be back for red light.
Sunday, Sunday, right here on twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. It's the Plex, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific and on into red light. We have the worst news in the week that no one else will cover. The Plex has it all. Conspiracy, right-wing nut jobs, Christian extremism, and Madison Star Moon. Tune in every Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media and find our full schedule at Echoplex Media dot com.